All right, well, uh, Daniel chapter 4, the, the, uh, I should have changed that to chapter 4. Uh, testimony of a great king is what we're looking at this week, the testimony of a great king. Uh, so you all may be familiar with the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Do you know this story? Uh, it's, a, it's an examination, really, of human nature. Uh, the story is told from the perspective of a Mr. Utterson, uh, who is uh, a lawyer, and he's a friend of Dr. Jekyll. And he becomes increasingly concerned at uh, Dr. Jekyll's increasingly erratic behavior, and most especially because he had recently asked Utterson to change his will so that everything he owned would be bequeathed to this man by the name of Edward Hyde, who was a man unknown to Utterson. So uh, Utterson became determined to meet this Mr. Hyde, to find out uh, what he was and what his deal was. And uh, he happened to live at the same address as Dr. Heckel, so, uh, as Dr. Jekyll. So, so uh, Utterson became determined uh, to meet him. And so he stalked his house until finally uh, he, he confronts this man, Edward Hyde, uh, and after he met him, he described him as the embodiment of evil. Now, that's what his impression was of Mr. Hyde. Uh, not long after Utterson met Hyde, uh, Hyde murdered a man uh, in broad daylight. Witnesses saw him do it. Uh, and so uh, there was no uh, alibi, uh, but uh, Hyde escaped and he could not be found. So since he lived at, at Dr. Jekyll's address, Utterson confronted him several times and said, where is this Mr. Hyde? Uh, but Jekyll became increasingly uh, withdrawn and uncommunicative. And it's not until the end of the story, as the reader hangs in there listening to, to uh, the story of, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that we start to get the sense that, that something is amiss, that, that perhaps uh, these two are one and the same person. And so uh, what happens at the end of the story is, uh, Utterson finds Mr. Hyde dead, uh, but he's wearing Dr. Jekyll's clothes, and this starts to trigger in our minds, what's going on here? Uh, well, uh, Mr. Hyde, or, or Dr. Jekyll had left a letter for Utterson explaining everything. And in the letter, uh, Dr. Jekyll says to Utterson, I was a well-respected doctor, but I have these urges in me. I have uncontrollable impulses and urges within me to do evil. And so in his laboratory, he developed this chemical potion uh, that he hoped were going to stop his impulses toward wicked behavior. And so he takes the potion. And unfortunately, what he learns is that it actually had the opposite effect. Uh, instead of uh, suppressing his impulses, uh, they brought the impulses even to further life uh, through his transformation into Mr. Hyde, this physically grotesque cre creature who acted out uh, Dr. Jekyll's evil inclinations without compassion or remorse. And for a while, Dr. Jekyll could control his transformations into Mr. Hyde with this antidote that he had developed that would turn him back from Dr. Jekyll, uh, or from Mr. Hyde into Dr. Jekyll at will. And so if he wanted to, he could be Mr. Hyde, but then he wanted, when he wanted to be Dr. Jekyll, he could turn back into him too, uh, just by taking the antidote that he had developed. But after a while, Dr. Jekyll could no longer control the appearances of Mr. Hyde. Uh, he would be walking along and all of a sudden he would turn into Mr. Hyde without notice, without warning, without even taking the potion. There he is, Mr. Hyde. And so Mr. Hyde was taking over this sinful nature in himself, was rising to the surface and dominating Dr. Jekyll's personality. And so Dr. Jekyll had to continue to take increased doses of his antidote to turn him back into uh, Dr. Jekyll. And sadly, one of the ingredients in this antidote that would turn him back into Dr. Jekyll was this contaminated salt 
So it couldn't be reproduced. Dr. Jekyll didn't know it when he made the potion, uh, the antidote originally, but this salt had been contaminated. So when he was trying to get more potion, make more potion to turn himself back into Dr. Jekyll, he couldn't do it. And so Mr. Hyde permanent, or Dr. Jekyll permanently changed into uh, Mr. Hyde. And when Utterson found him uh, in Jekyll's clothes, dead on the floor, it was because Hyde, uh, Mr. Hyde knew that he couldn't hide behind Dr. Jekyll's identity anymore. Dr. Jekyll was gone. Now the sinful, wicked, evil, only Mr. Hyde existed. And he preferred to kill himself rather than uh, be arrested and hanged for the murder. What a dark dark story, right? What a commentary on the duality of human nature, this sin within us that, that rises up and, and can dominate our personality to, to, to the point where uh, it's like as Paul said in chapter 7 of Romans, right? The things I, I don't want to do, these are the things I do. Uh, this is what the story is about. Uh, so he had this dark side, and we all have this dark side, and there is no magic potion, uh, no, nothing that, 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 uh, no antidote that can control our sinful natures that comes in the form of a bottle. For some, the battle is against greed. For others, it's against self-promotion, uh, desire for comfort above anything else. But what about Nebuchadnezzar as we come to Daniel chapter 4? His, uh, his inner beast, uh, this thing that kept rising up in him, is his pride, right? He's got this overinflated sense of pride, uh, out of control, building a 90-foot statue uh, made of gold to himself and demanding that everybody bow down and worship it when the music plays or else you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, that's pride, right? Uh, and so this was on full display. And then uh, the potion that, that further exposed his pride was the growth of his kingdom, the, the, the success of his kingdom, and the completion of the vast building projects, projects that he undertook, which were likely completed between the end of Daniel chapter 3 and the beginning of Daniel chapter 4. And so, despite Daniel's advice and Daniel's warnings, Nebuchadnezzar continued to exalt himself over the one true God, and he became a monster on the inside. And so God fulfilled uh, his promises, his warnings to make Nebuchadnezzar a hideous creature on the outside as well. However, God's punishment turned into the antidote that Nebuchadnezzar actually needed uh, to return to his normal self. In fact, better than his normal self because God finally humbled Nebuchadnezzar before God and God restored his sanity to him and his kingdom as well, giving him the humility he needed. So this is a lesson for us as we go through this story. Of course, pride goes before the fall, right? That is a very biblical admonition. And also, God is sovereign over his creation and, and his creatures, and he sets up and he deposes kings at will. And he's sovereign over our lives too, and there is a day of reckoning for all who will not humble themselves and bow the knee to Almighty God. <clears throat> But there's even a further important lesson that I want to explore as we get toward uh, the end of this sermon today. And that is that though God is sovereign, he's also deeply personal. Uh, he's, he's a deeply intimate God who loves his creatures and wants to have relationship with us. And he will go to great lengths uh, to see that he has it. Uh, so that's where we're going in our sermon today, and we're going to start by recounting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which is verses 1 to 18, a bit of a long passage, but uh, hang in there with me, and uh, we'll, we'll read the dream and then discuss. 
so here we go. Uh, Daniel chapter one, King uh, chapter four, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream that they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed." In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field." Let him be drenched with the dew of heavens, uh, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets them over the lowliest people." This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Well, I want us to notice, first of all, that, that much of chapter 4 of the book of Daniel is written in the first person. This is Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony of what God did in his life, in the life of a pagan king. And it's what is called a sandwich story. It kind of starts with the praise of God. It ends with the praise of God. And in the middle, it's going to recount the story of why Nebuchadnezzar is praising God. What has God done? In fact, the only part of chapter 4 that is in the third person is when Nebuchadnezzar becomes this beast. Uh, and so uh, commentators say, well, he couldn't speak for himself. So he's in the third person because someone was speaking for him. So it's written in the first person. It's his personal testimony. Uh, it's not known exactly when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, uh, but the, the context does give us some clues. Um, it seems that he had completed all of his ambitious building projects, uh, which are outlined a little bit more later in the chapter. Uh, but he's standing on the roof of his palace, surveying all the wonderful building projects that he had completed when he got turned into an animal. And he was taking ease in his palace, which would seem to indicate that uh, he was not being threatened by enemies on any side anymore, but there was peace in his kingdom. 
And so probably uh, this event happened later uh, in his reign, perhaps even as many as 30 years after uh, Daniel chapter 3 and the incident of, of the fiery furnace. And so uh, if, you're, if you're still hanging on to that uh, chart that I made for you in the beginning of this sermon series, uh, I have this date listed about 570, whereas Nebuchadnezzar came to power and uh, took uh, Daniel to Babylon in about 605 BC. So again, Nebuchadnezzar has another disturbing dream. He summons his wise men uh, who could not interpret the dream for him. And so we would wonder why, knowing what we know so far, why didn't he just start with Daniel in the first place? He had proven himself already. Uh, and so it, it may be that Daniel was unavailable for, for some reason. He just wasn't uh, able to come immediately. Or perhaps he deliberately delayed uh, so that he could watch all the other wise men fail before he could come in and give glory to God uh, by interpreting the dream again. <clears throat> we really don't know. But when Daniel arrived, uh, Nebuchadnezzar called him by both his Hebrew name and the Babylonian name, the name of, of Nebuchadnezzar's God, uh, which he had given him. And so this shows that at the time of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is still worshiping his, his pagan, uh, pagan gods. Uh, and he had just added Daniel's God to his list of gods that he was already worshiping. And he also said the spirit of the holy gods is within him. So he still was not yet submitting to the one true God, but still Nebuchadnezzar was convinced that Daniel could interpret this dream for him. And we see, as we've seen throughout chapters 1 through 4, that God is working on Nebuchadnezzar. He's drawing Nebuchadnezzar to himself. So uh, he describes the dream to Daniel. There was a tree that grew great and large with abundant fruit, beautiful foliage. The, the, the tree sustained life. It protected God's creatures. But then a messenger, a holy one, comes down from heaven, and, and the messenger orders the tree to be cut down with only the stump remaining, which will be uh, uh, bound with bronze and iron, uh, which hints that it would be protected and that one day it might grow back. And then if you check the second half of verse 15 in your Bible, it's interesting uh, that the it, the tree, becomes a hymn, starting in verse 15. The stump becomes a hymn rather than, is, than an it as the angel passes sentence. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the beasts of the field. Let him have the mind of an animal until seven times have passed. Uh, and so... Daniel often uses the word time to refer to a year. And so this is seven years of living like an animal that the angel has sentenced him to. And the most important part of the dream is verse 17, uh, where, uh, which stresses God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth, and he gives them to anyone he chooses uh, and sets them over even the lowliest people. So this is the dream that he has, and he asks Daniel to interpret the dream for him. So let's read verses 19 to 27 and read the interpretation. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if the dream applied only to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, uh, the tree you saw, which grew, large among, uh, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves, abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, your majesty, you are that tree." You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. 
Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. So it seems like Daniel had genuine compassion for Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar, right? This is the man who, who captured Daniel when he was a teenager uh, and brought him to Babylon along with his friends and so many others. Uh, he also brought a second and third wave of Jews from Israel to Babylon in 597 and 586 BC. He destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. This is a wicked man who Daniel has every reason to hate. Uh, He opposed Israel. He opposed Daniel's God. And yet, for all these wicked things that he had done, it seems that Daniel had forgiven Nebuchadnezzar for these offenses. And so what a powerful thing forgiveness is, right? That Daniel could live with among this, this pagan king and advise him for all these years. Uh, forgiveness is, the, is the, the ability to, to release wrongs that have do, been done to us and the bitterness and anger that comes with them and, and not let them eat us up inside. It's the power to live in freedom from these wrongs so that we don't allow them to ruin our future days And it's a powerful witness to those we've forgiven and those who watch us forgive others uh, about the power of what forgiveness is. And so I think Daniel had forgiven him. I think he had even grown to admire Nebuchadnezzar over the years. And I think we see that in his reluctance to tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream, Uh, not out of fear, but out of compassion. Like if you and I were telling Nebuchadnezzar the dream, I'll speak for myself, I might be like, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going down for all you've done, right? But, but Nebuchadnezzar, uh, or Daniel wasn't like that to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you know, I, I, I wish I had better news for you, king. I, I wish it wasn't about you. Uh, and it seems that like that was reciprocal because Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, don't fear to tell me the dream. Just shoot it to me straight. I, I can take it. And so Daniel says, uh, you know, king, Your your kingdom is legendary, uh, but there is a day of reckoning coming. This cutting down of the tree means that Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose his kingdom, lose his place of authority, be forced to live out in the fields among the wild beasts for a period of seven years until he acknowledged that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. The kingdom would be restored to him uh, when he acknowledged that heaven, which is a synonym for God in this case, Uh, God rules. And here's, I think, where we see this evidence of this relationship between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel could have just let the dream end there, right, and not say any more. But Daniel, uh, out of compassion, I think, offers some advice to Nebuchadnezzar. Renounce your sins. Be kind to the oppressed. Maybe God will change his mind. So uh, Daniel's advice to Nebuchadnezzar is repent. 
repent of your sins. Uh, Daniel believed that repentance could change God's mind. Uh, we saw that uh, when, we, when we studied the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah preached repentance to Nineveh, right? And the Ninevites repented, and God stayed his, judge, his judgment against them. So why might he not do this for Nebuchadnezzar? This is what Daniel was hoping. Doing these acts of kindness uh, would show a submissive attitude uh, to God. And if he had listened to Daniel's advice, he could have saved himself a whole lot uh, of misery. Uh, so let's look at the fulfillment of the dream in verses 28 to 33. Uh, all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months uh, later, as the king was walking on the roof of his palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal res residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass before you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to whoever he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like, grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claw of a bird. So God endured Nebuchadnezzar's pride for a whole year, right? Giving Nebuchadnezzar every opportunity to repent. What a gracious God we serve. But as the king walks on the roof of his palace, observing all that he had built, all the wonder of his kingdom, he just could not oppress his pride. Uh, and so uh, Daniel told him that God uh, sets up kingdoms, deposes his, his kingdoms at will. And Daniel had already told Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will not last forever. But just a year later, there is Nebuchadnezzar on the roof of his palace, taking all the credit for everything uh, that he had built. Well, this is an artist's rendering of what the entrance to the city of Babylon looked like. And prominent in the middle of this drawing is the Ishtar Gate. Uh, the Ishtar Gate was the eighth gate to the inner city of Babylon. And it was built about 575 BC uh, in the, on the north side of the city by, Babel, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this thing has actually been excavated uh, in the early 20th century in Babylon. Uh, archaeologists went over there and they dug up this wall and piece by piece, they restored those bricks and put the wall back together again. And so this uh, gate here, uh, you can actually go to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin and you can see that. Uh, that's the actual gate uh, that was uh, the entrance to the city of Babylon. Uh, what else? The, 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 these are... This is an artist's rendering of perhaps what the Hanging Gardens of Babylon uh, might have looked like. You're going to love this. Nebuchadnezzar built these gardens, allegedly, to cheer up his depressed wife. Uh, so she was the daughter of the king of the Medes, uh, who lived to the north, where uh, the, 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 the land, the... the, the, uh, the what am I trying to say? The architect... The, 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 the What's the word? The, the, the landscape. That's what I'm trying to say. Thank you. The landscape. Thank you very much, you folks. Uh, the landscape was way different, like northwestern Arkansas, you know, mountainous and, and green and trees and beautiful. 
Uh, and yet, uh, she lived in this place uh, in Babylon that probably looked more like West Texas, right? Flat, dusty plains. And so this depressed her. She wanted the green uh, that she used to have back from her homeland. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar, being the caring and loving husband that he was, uh, he built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. This was a 400-foot mountain that he built in the middle of this uh, area. And he covered it with trees and plants and gardens. And he built this uh, pulley system where uh, buckets would take water out of the Euphrates River, bring them up to the top, water the gardens all the way down. Now, wasn't he a sweet guy? Uh, and, and wouldn't it be nice to have those resources, right? To be able to, to say, I need about 15,000 guys to build uh, you know, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon for my wife. So uh, that's the kind of man Nebuchadnezzar was when he wasn't killing people, he was being sweet to his wife. <laughs> This is an artist's rendering of what the entire city of Babylon might have looked like. It had a double-walled system around the entire city. Uh, the inner wall was 21 feet thick and reinforced with defense towers 60 feet apart. The outer wall was 11 feet wide and also had watchtowers. Uh, later, Nebuchadnezzar added another outer wall system uh, around the uh, city uh, that was 25 feet uh, thick, with an inner wall 23 feet thick. You think Nebuchadnezzar was a little paranoid, maybe? Uh, you know, building wall after wall after wall, and we're going to see that it was justified in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, but this wall, this latest wall that he built, was 17 miles around, 17 miles around, and wide enough at the top for chariots to pass. This is a big wall, uh, and the Ishtar Gate itself was 40 feet high, and so the walls were probably of similar height. So just imagine Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's walking on his rooftop, and he's surveying the grandeur of all that he had built. He saw all this. He said, I have built this, and his pride got the better of him. And as soon as the king had spoken these prideful words, he probably wanted to suck them right back into his mouth, right, as soon as they came out. But he heard a voice from heaven pronouncing his punishment. And, and Daniel had warned Nebuchadnezzar what would happen if he refused to repent. And immediately something snapped in his mind and it became like uh, the wild animals. And uh, it's surprising to me that, that Nebuchadnezzar's enemies didn't kill him while he was in that uh, weakened condition. But the fact that he survived, I think, is, is testimony to God's sovereignty. Uh, God protected Nebuchadnezzar so that when he did acknowledge uh, that God is sovereign, uh, he could continue to rule. And I wonder what role Daniel might have played as a high administrator in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, cabinet uh, to protect the king and encouraging uh, the other officials to expect and plan for Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. Well, wouldn't it be nice, uh, you and I, uh, to have actual secular evidence of the fact that this actually happened, right? Because this is an unbelievable story. Uh, so what do we do with these unbelievable stories in the Bible that are so hard uh, for us to wrap our minds around? Well, uh, the simple answer is, well, we trust God because God said it and we believe it. And that's true of things in the Bible. Uh, and, and, and though still the Babylonians, they, they did keep ex extensive records of what happened uh, historically. And, and we have lots of those records, but we don't have any record of this. Uh, and this is what one commentator said about why. Uh, he said, information concerning Nebuchadnezzar's last 30 years is sparse and no record of the king's illness has been found in the Babylonian annals. Yet, such humiliating experience certainly would have been omitted from official accounts, for corroboration of it, the illness that is, can hardly be ever expected from archaeology, 
for royal families do not leave memorials of such frailties. This fact would be doubly true of ancient monarchs whose annals were chiefly political propaganda written to exalt the reputation of the nation and the king. And while that may be true, and I believe that is true, still it seems that some evidence was left to us, wasn't it? Because it's contained here in the book of Daniel. It seems that though Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation is not recorded in the secular records of Babylon, yet here it is, Nebuchadnezzar's own written account of what happened uh, contained here in the book of Daniel, which is a very good reason why we should believe it, because this is God's inspired word. Uh, so uh, this happened, he became like an animal, uh, and yet God still restored him as he promised he would. So let's look at this restoration in verses 34 through 37. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Wow, quite a transformation, right? So Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes to heaven. That indicates his submission, his surrender, and his acknowledgement of his need for God, which is exactly what Daniel said he must do in order to be restored. Now, certainly God caused Nebuchadnezzar to look up, right? We would, we would say that because God is sovereign and Nebuchadnezzar had the mind of an animal, uh, it must have been God who caused him to look up. Uh, and yet Nebuchadnezzar did look up. And so we, we have uh, this God's sovereignty and Nebuchadnezzar's responsibility to respond. And he did respond. And it's amazing to me that all Nebuchadnezzar had to do was to lift his eyes, right? Just this, that's it, the simple, simplest gesture. And here comes God's blessings just flowing through, right? Uh, and so uh, I just find that amazing. Uh, God, God is like that with us when we repent too. Uh, when we come to salvation, when we come to saving faith, we, we, he moves us to move toward him. And when we do, the blessings just come pouring in. And even when we repent of sin, uh, it reminds me of, of the, uh, the story in, in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son, right? Uh, the man is out there waiting and waiting for his son to come. And as soon as he sees him coming down the road, he clothes him in the royal robe and puts the signet ring on him and slays the fattened calf, right? We just make a move and God's blessings just pour, overflow uh, to us. We take a step toward God. He walks a mile to us to reconcile with us. Well, Nebuchadnezzar finally acknowledged God, and this was the antidote to his pride. Uh, God gave him back his sanity, his majesty, all the splendor that he had, even greater than before, uh, the hideous Mr. Hyde uh, in the form of Nebuchadnezzar in the, in, as a wild beast returned uh, to uh, become an even better version of what Nebuchadnezzar had been. Uh, and so the sin of pride was cut out of him like a cancer. And, and Nebuchadnezzar praised and glorified the God of heaven. And he learned that God humbles whoever he wants to who walk with pride. 
Now, God has brought Nebuchadnezzar a whole long way since the beginning of chapter one, hasn't he? And so my question is, will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? What do you think when you, when you look at this and you read about this testimony? Well, let's look at the data a little bit, shall we? Uh, we learn from scripture that God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. And so here's the evidence of Nebuchadnezzar's humility. He acknowledged God's right to rule. He praised, he exalted, glorified God as the king of heaven. And he acknowledged that all God does is just and right. So uh, I personally believe that Nebuchadnezzar had a personal experience and encounter with the living God and that we will see him in heaven someday. And wouldn't that be an amazing thing to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? So God showed his sovereignty over Nebuchadnezzar, right? But what I really want us to think about is how personally God interacted with Nebuchadnezzar from the time when we were first introduced to him in Daniel chapter one. And Nebuchadnezzar uh, takes Daniel captive, brings him uh, to Babylon while Nebuchadnezzar was new on the throne and Daniel was just a teenager. Uh, in Daniel chapter two, uh, Nebuchadnezzar learned that, that God was omniscient to reveal the dream that he wouldn't even tell to his uh, magicians and sorcerers and to interpret it uh, and, and to give him a, an outline of what was gonna happen in the future, that God is, has a plan uh, for the world and it's God who sets up, and sets up and takes down rulers. And in chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar witnessed God's unfathomable, unfathomable power to watch these uh, three youths go into the fiery furnace and yet come out with even the smell of, without even the smell of fire on them. And here in chapter four, God, uh, Nebuchadnezzar learned that uh, though he may have been the supreme ruler on earth, yet God is ruler even over him, sovereign over him, sovereign even over, over Nebuchadnezzar's sanity. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar at the same time learned that God is personal and intimate and relational. God, God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar personally through dreams and showed himself, revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar to draw him to saving faith. And I don't know if there's ever been uh, a more unlikely person to get to heaven, other than maybe me, uh, than Nebuchadnezzar, right? Or you, we could all say the same thing. Uh, if God could save Nebuchadnezzar, and if he could save me, and if he could save you, uh, who can't he save, right? God can save anyone. So I wanna move on to application at this point. Um, <clears throat> it's easy for us to see God's sovereignty uh, in Daniel chapter four, and we'll be talking about God's sovereignty throughout the entire book of Daniel. Uh, and it would also be appropriate at this point to talk about the dangers of pride, right? Because God does uh, humble the proud, and it's something for us to keep our eyes on, that we don't get puffed up uh, because we are among God's children. But what I really wanna focus on this week is, is how personal God is, how he desires intimacy and relationship with his people. He showed himself so clearly to Nebuchadnezzar that he could no longer resist God, and Nebuchadnezzar experienced him personally. So at our men's breakfast that we've been doing uh, for, for this year, we've been studying uh, Henry Blackaby's book called The Man God Uses. And uh, just last Saturday, we had the men's breakfast. And I was, as I was preparing, uh, reading chapter five of the book, uh, Blackaby cited this verse in chapter 17 of John, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ who you sent. Now, I've read this verse many times, and I know you've read this verse many times as well, too. But this time, 
it just hit me in a whole new way, which, which shows me that the Word of God is living and active, right? It just is constantly, uh, constantly new and fresh. And so what I saw, uh, maybe for the first time, is that eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. So I've been meditating now on this verse uh, for two weeks now. Uh, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know Jesus? Uh, what does that mean? Do I know God personally? And what does my personal relationship with God look like day to day? What does that relationship look like? So uh, I put an insert in the bulletin this week, uh, and this is what it's for. Uh, this is what I'd like you to do. I'd, I'd like you to meditate this week on John chapter 17, verse 3, and on the first four chapters of the book of Daniel, where, where God personally draws uh, this murdering pagan king to himself so that Nebuchadnezzar even would know God. God wants that same relationship with all of us. So here is the exercise, and uh, I don't often ask you to do anything, so don't let me down, all right? I really want you all to do this. Uh, I'd like you to take that little card in your bulletin there and just answer these two questions. Do I know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom God sent? And secondly, how would I describe my personal relationship with Jesus today? I'm not asking for your personal salvation testimony. For most of you, that happened long in the distant past, uh, so I'm not asking you to tell me about that. I'm asking you to honestly describe what your personal relationship with Jesus looks like today. So be specific, and I'd like you to hand in uh, this piece of paper to me next week, and I would just love to read that for my own edification, and maybe, if you're willing, uh, you might let me share it with the rest of the church as well. God's revelation of himself to Nebuchadnezzar was only encouraging to us and to anyone who's read the story because Daniel shared the story, right? So we need to share our testimony. So uh, I'm not letting myself off the hook. Here's mine, okay? Yes, I do have a personal relationship with Jesus today, and here's what it looks like. I know because God speaks to me through his word proving to me that it's living and active, just like he did this week as I'm working through Daniel chapter 4 and seeing how it correlates together with John 17, 3. And I'm also seeing it as, as I try to work through difficult passages like we had to do a couple of weeks ago in Daniel chapter 2 and asking God to give me the wisdom to present both sides of a difficult argument and to do it with grace uh, in areas where Christians uh, may disagree. Uh, Molly and I invite the Holy Spirit into our marriage. So there are not two people in our marriage. There are three people in our marriage. And so uh, he helps us to love and submit to one another, uh, which is why our marriage uh, is going strong after, after many years. Uh, Jesus doesn't speak to me audibly, uh, which you're probably most of you relieved to hear. Uh, but I often do feel him guiding my prayers so that I'm praying more uh, in his will, uh, less in my will, you know. Bob, that's, that sounds like something that you want, but maybe you ought to be praying something like this, something more that I might want. And he's constantly working on me, nudging me to produce more of the fruit of the Spirit. And when I preach, and, and when I uh, act according to his will, and when I'm with the people who I love and who love me, uh, I feel God's pleasure. And so these are just some of the ways that my relationship with God is personal and intimate. So uh, what does yours look like? I really want to know. Uh, write out how you know you have a personal relationship with Jesus today. And, and I think you're going to be encouraged by that. And if you share it, you'll encourage others too. Uh, God is personal, he's intimate and relational, and he loves us very much. 
So tell others how he is all those things to you. And I'll be looking forward to seeing your cards next Sunday. I'm watching y'all. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you for what you've done in Nebuchadnezzar's life, uh, what you've done in our lives, Lord, to take uh, sinful uh, Mr. Hyde's, Lord, and just uh, somehow do a miraculous work inside of us so that we have come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and Lord, that we know we'll be in heaven uh, someday. Lord, we just thank you for your son. We thank you for the work that he's done on the cross for us. And Lord, uh, we just give you all praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.